0: You know what? I don't know if anything's unfilmable at this point. <laughs> How many times have we have we talked about a project where people said, "Oh, this is unfilmable," and then something kind of amazing actually happens? Like there's almost like that challenge can sometimes actually really drive creativity. Game of Thrones was considered unfilmable. Uh, Annihilation, unfilmable. Like there's been a lot of things that you know along the way that have actually been pretty successful. Dune. Dune, absolutely. Yeah.
1: friends, to episode 237 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss episodes one through five of Alan Heinberg's 2022 series, The Sandman. So last week, when discussing adapting The Sandman, we kind of talked about some of the key aspects that would be difficult to pull off, yeah, um, the tone and uh, some of the character stuff. So, you know, having seen it, What are your thoughts so far? Are you enjoying the show?
0: Absolutely, man. Uh, Launching right into it. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely liking it so far. Uh, They maintained some of the horror uh, elements that I was worried weren't going to make it into the show. That's probably the thing I'm maybe the most excited about is that the, the, the darkness of the comic, at least in a way, has made it into the adaptation. So I'm really happy about that. Um, yeah, I'm having fun with it so far, honestly. I'm having a great time with the adaptation. It's not perfect in every way. It's not everything I want, but it's really good. And ultimately that, that is what I want for an adaptation, right? Like it's never very rarely going to be perfect and there are always going to be things that are pleasant surprises. And there's a lot of that in here. There's a lot to like. It feels, uh, like it's been changed for the medium while still retaining a lot of the heart. That is in the comic. Um, now, of course, we've only read 10 issues. So granted, right. um, we're not like experts on the comic. But we've
1: also for, only seen five episodes here, though.
0: Right. It feels uh, pretty faithful. I can see Neil Gaiman's hand on it. Um, so there's a lot to like here, man. Uh, yeah, excited to talk about it.
1: I think surprise and and delightfully surprise is the, the main thing I'm feeling because yeah. I was a little pessimistic going in, maybe, or maybe not pessimistic, just like I felt like they had a tall task.
0: Definitely, it's a hard one to imagine. Like, how are they going to pull this off? It really is.
1: I think I was expecting something in the tone of like Shadow and Bone that we got, that has like elements of people in danger and sort of like, but it's definitely more YA and coming yeah. of age kind of thing. And this, it's not doing that at all. It's it's right. adult, and I think that that's great that it's like gone that route because that's what the comic is asking for, right? Yeah. That's what the that's what the source material is.
0: I thought we were going to go a lot more in the direction of Good Omens. Yeah, personally, I thought we were going to get really. Sort of comedic, tongue-in-cheek, um, and I'm glad to see that. While there is maybe some similar characteristics, the the tone of this feels different.
1: I, I think they're doing a great job of capturing some of the main things that I liked about the comic too. Like, they're it's it's dark. They're taking their time. The filmmaking reflects just to that epic scale that I wanted from something that's about eternals, the people that are like endless eternal beings.
0: And on a TV budget, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what that means exactly these days, but I, I'm still pretty impressed with what they're able to do.
1: Yeah, I've been really happy so far. Yeah, from the, from the get go. But yeah, so if you didn't hear one through five is what we've watched so far. Right. Um, we've talked heavily about Neil Gaiman's involvement, which I'll explain more about as we go
0: through. Before we get into that, um, I just want to touch on a couple things. Um, First off, uh, I want to mention again, I'm going to be at Worldcon in Chicago. uh, That's the first week of September. I don't have my official schedule yet, but I will announce it on here at some point once I do. Um, So stay tuned for that. Love to see you there. Second off, last week we talked about how I finished my uh, underwater sci-fi novel. And I just wanted to touch in because something kind of fun happened while i was after i finished it i was doing a read through like a revision read through pass um i only gave myself about a week to do it before i handed it over to some critique partners while i was reading it i started picturing it as a comic <laughs> um and it really it, it, this has never happened to me before maybe this is like if people read comics a lot and you write prose maybe this happens to you a lot it's never happened to me before But because we were reading, I I was reading Sandman and then I went immediately to my book and started reading it. I started picturing it as this comic and I could see the panels and I could see the bubbles with the with the speech and all this stuff. It was really cool. Um, And I got really excited to talk about it on the episode, wrote down my notes and stuff. And then I noticed actually as the week went on, the effect started to fade. And after just a few days, I was no longer picturing it that way. Yeah. And I could try to I could like make myself do it by trying it, but it wasn't happening naturally. So I I just, I don't know, I thought that was interesting, right? Like, Like immersing myself in a comic had that effect on me. Where I immediately started seeing my stuff in that way.
1: I love that. I think that we're we're making a comic a comic fan out of you like all <laughs> through and through.
0: You know, I liked it it gave me a different perspective on what I was what I was reading, which I think is useful. It's always useful. So it was cool.
1: Now you just have to put yourself through art school to learn how to yeah. draw your own paneling and, and yeah. like create some Hey.
0: There are there are comic book writers who don't draw their own comics. That's true. Plenty of them. Neil Gaiman, yeah. <laughs> Neil Gaiman is one of them. So <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's cool that to, to reflect on that. That, that you that you uh, were seeing your story as a comic and then and then you sort of got to a point where you're like no not any longer
0: well it, it was uh, it just naturally faded I don't know and I went back to what I more normally do which is I, I sort of I guess I kind of embody my characters and I picture it not necessarily cinematically but more akin to like if you're playing a tabletop role-playing game and if you really get into character you start sort of picturing yourself in the scene i right. um, sort of embodying that character and I tend to picture things that way like I, like I am there um, which is good for sensory detail um, outside of what you would see right it's, you know movies and comics are very good at visual but if you want those other senses um, sometimes you got to go beyond that but um, yeah just naturally I started shifting back to my more baseline I think and then away from the comic thing but I just thought that was a fun little little weird thing that happened. Uh, and we're going to be reading the comic again here coming up. So maybe it'll come back. I- I'll be curious to see.
1: When writing like your your POVs, putting yourself in maybe a different POV, like so rather than t- I-, I think that I would approach it as from a third person perspective. And like you said, to get into that first person gives you more of that sensory sort of point of view. And, and that's interesting. I was going to ask, like, do you jump back and forth? Like when you're writing, do you ever like think like, oh, I need to think of this from like a bird's eye view or like? Yeah,
0: a- I-, I-, I I mean, you're you are omniscient in this situation, so you you can move in and out. But if you're writing a limited perspective, I think it actually does help to try and ground yourself in the character you're in. Otherwise, you'll start accidentally describing things that they can't perceive.
1: In your mind's eye, first person point of view from the character? Like sort of like Skyrim, like hands in front of you kind of thing? No,
0: it's different. It's, um, it's more like uh, in a video game. If you want to use a video game comparison, it's more like that close third person where you're like looking over the shoulder. Okay, That's sometimes yeah. how I feel, um, especially if I'm not writing in first person, but it it is very close. It's like I can like kind of roll the mouse button and move into their head. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I can jump into the thoughts. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's interesting cool. to anybody else, but that that's the way I do it. At least I don't know how many other writers would think of it that way.
1: Yeah. I think that's cool. It's cool to note. Okay. So yeah, jumping back into the Sandman here.
0: Let me just say, man, I'm in a good mood. I'm in a good mood about the show. I'm in a good mood about the FBI. I'm in a good mood about (laughs) the fucking, uh, some bills getting passed. Finally, they're going to address climate change. It's not often I feel good about the FBI in general. It's really not. (laughs) It's really not. Um, this has been a fun week, man. I got my book done, like quote unquote done. Like I'm excited and I was really hoping that this adaptation was gonna let me down and it hasn't. So yeah. um, I'm pumped.
1: Yeah, I'm so, I just, I still can't believe like how much I've enjoyed what we've watched so far. Not perfect, like you said, but damn is it like, it's a lot of fun and it's, you know, one of the most exciting shows that that's come out that we've covered for the podcast, I feel like in a little while, right?
0: Yeah, probably going back to like uh, Station Eleven, which was also really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely.
1: So um, the series was developed by Gaiman, David S. Goyer, who you might know, uh, wrote the screenplay for Batman Begins and then worked on the story. He was part of the story creation for The Dark Knight and uh, The Dark Knight Rises. And he's also worked on a lot of other uh, superhero projects. He wrote uh, The Blade Trilogy. He wrote um, Man of Steel, uh, Batman vs. Superman. So some of these are like, you know, Batman vs. Superman. Oof. (laughs) <laughs> but it's really interesting to see how the DC stuff is threaded in here like that sort of because this is a DC property. Yeah. Um you know Netflix had to create a, a deal with DC and I actually did hear, you know you talked about budget for TV these days and I heard that this is like by far the most money that DC's paid for a show so far. Like they, I think they it was shows. a big deal for Netflix.
0: It looks it looks amazing. It's got go- it's got really high quality visual effects which I think is an, a must to get this right.
1: Yeah. And then also uh, Alan Heinberg, who I mentioned is actually the showrunner, came on as well and worked as a screenwriter for Wonder Woman, the Patty Jenkins directed uh, Gal Gadot film. OK, the, the, first uh, the one live action. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the first, first one. one. Cool. And then uh, worked on Sex and the City, Gilmore Girls, The O.C., Grey's Anatomy.
0: I wonder if that's the David Thulis connection.
1: It could be. I do. I loved a David Thewlis sighting. Yeah, he's great. And he's yeah. great in this. And then Alan Heinberg also uh, has written for Marvel Comics. He, I think he had a run with Young Avengers, and he co-wrote Justice League Crisis of Conscious with Geoff Johns, who's like a big deal at DC. So worked a lot in the comic space, worked a lot in the, the TV space, and then, you know, blending those two together uh, with Gaiman and Goyer. I think that's just like a perfect match. And, and it's crazy, too, because you mentioned last week, I had no idea sort of the the rocky history but trying to get this adapted has been a process
0: it's been a thing yeah i was seeing some of that but i didn't want to dive too deep into it because i wanted to be able to touch on it this week right i um, so yeah i'm definitely interested but like it seems like he got some people on board who are comic people who've done the adaptation process for other properties are willing to work with him and capture what made the comic so iconic which is what you got to do right like you It would have been such a disaster to try and take this legendary graphic novel series, legendary comic series, and transform it into a (laughs) two-hour... you know, slasher movie or something, which I think I read that one of the adaptation, uh, one of the suggested adaptations turned it into this like weird horror movie where like Sandman was a bad guy. Or He's something. a villain. Yeah, a villain. Uh, and then, we'll,
1: we'll definitely get into some of that stuff. But yeah, you can tell that that he sort of waited for the right time. It was going to be a film for a long time.
0: Well, I think Gaiman said like he he would rather it never be adapted than see it adapted to the wrong way which is you know i gotta give him credit for standing by his guns with that
1: but i think this is the right time for it to be made i think if it's made before this i worry that you know like the, the care wasn't there or the people he, he got around him that i think they're also game and fans i think they understand the source material really well and, and like you know if you were to have something adapted that's what you would want right like you would want someone who really understands it not just somebody who's a great filmmaker necessarily You know, right
0: now, now we know that that is not Always going to lead to the best movie. Um, sometimes, if you sort of kowtow to the to the author a little too much, that can be a problem. Yeah. um But it's a good starting point. It's a good. It's you want to have a healthy relationship with the creatives. You want to be. A, and as an author, you hope that the, on your side, you're willing to give up some of your control and give up some of your. Uh, I don't know, precious vision and let somebody else in the room and and give you the talents and the skills that they bring to the table and and blend those yeah. two together.
1: Well, and it's rare that a writer even has say over who they're working with. Too. It is.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It's very rare. This kind of situation, Neil Gaiman's in, or like we've seen Stephen King be in this situation a few times, is starting to happen a little more with like really high-profile writers. But this is not yeah. typical for Hollywood. Speaking Usually of- you sell your rights and then you... Like, we, we talked about this with uh, Station 11. Emily St. John Mandel was like f- watching the show as it was coming out to find out if it was good. Like, she wasn't like she she sold the rights and that was it. You know, maybe a few text messages with the director here or there. Yeah.
1: Uh, speaking of high profile writers, uh, I've been hearing a lot of buzz. There's going to be some big announcements, I think, coming out of the Sanderson camp here soon in yeah, terms I've heard of adaptations. And like, it seems like he has creative control over some of this stuff. Like, I yeah. think he's going to have a big as big a hand as maybe a game and dozen in here.
0: Yeah, and we'll see if that's a good thing, you know? <laughs> Let's see, yeah.
1: Well, I'm excited either way, you know? I think that'd be fun to to check out.
0: Yeah, and ultimately, I like seeing authors have that sort of power uh, in this situation because then if it's a bad, I mean, if it's really bad, it'll it'll unfortunately reflect on authors in general and then studios will be more hesitant to let them have that sort of yeah. control. But it, it, it does feel like if it's gonna die, I'd rather it die because the author went for their vision and and wasn't able to quite achieve it.
1: I think most of the time, like, they understand what the audience is responding
0: well to. And, you know, they can kind of...
1: But do they understand the
0: medium, right? Like, That's I, I feel true. like I'm the filmmaker talking right now. But like, <laughs> do like authors sometimes like, yeah, they might understand their books through and through, but they don't always understand what makes a good movie or what makes a good show.
1: That's true. Yeah, yeah. very true. I, I saw a TikTok... That I have to mention. I think I sent it to you. I don't know if you've seen it yet. But uh, Gaiman and, and George R. R. Martin were chatting. Have you seen this yet?
0: No, I have not.
1: So Gaiman and George R. R. Martin were chatting, and this goes back to the days of George R. R. Martin being a an editor, and Sandman came across his desk, and he said no to it. <laughs> and and uh, apparently Gaiman always gives him shit, and he's like, I owe Sandman to you the fact that it's in the in the form that it is, and and so you know uh, George R. 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 Martin kind of said. He's like, you know, it wasn't my finest moment as an editor, but like, you know, it has ended up where it is today. So there I it love is.
0: stories like that, man. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, it's like it's scary. But on the other hand, it's, it's cool to know that it eventually found the audience. Right. So
1: getting into this uh, development situation, attempts to adapt the Sandman have gone back to the 1990s. Gaiman was so first. So that's
0: shortly after it probably
1: finished its run or maybe was even still ongoing still ongoing maybe even yeah Yeah. seems like it so Gaiman was first asked about a film adaptation by DC's corporate sibling Warner Brothers who are going to play a heavy hand in a lot of this and there's a lot of Warner Brothers stuff going on right now with this whole discovery parent company kind of thing yeah
0: yeah it almost seems like we can't get into that because I don't really understand it all but
1: it's crazy I mean it's a big thing it seems like they're we should talk about it I think this is a big film thing so it's uh it seems like Discovery is trying to find ways to make Warner Brothers more profitable. And they have found that this $90 million Batgirl film who tons of people worked on for years and years, um, they decided to pull the plug on it. And, and it's basically sort of done, right? Shelf it. No, it's, yeah, basically done. Like it was in post heavily post-production. Like it was very close. And they decided to pull the plug on it because apparently there's a huge tax incentive and tax break that they would get. <laughs> and the idea of this is fucking terrifying. And, uh, but yeah, that's that's sort of where they're and at. People and people wonder why studios get such a bad rap. It's just like, and, and HBO is under that sort of umbrella. So wow. seeing them affected in ways, and they're sort of the big, I would say they're the, the company to look to currently in terms of like original content. Yeah. And to think of, you know, an umbrella company having ownership over them in that way is kind of scary to think about. Definitely. You know, they're not prioritizing the art of it. Obviously, there's a No, I would say that that's
0: not if you're if you're going to put it as a tax write-off and not even ever. Apparently, yeah, I read something about how, like, if they do that, they can legally never release that. Never movie.
1: release it. Yeah. And that's crazy. I think with the backlash that's currently going on, hopefully something will be done about it because it makes no sense. But we'll see, man. I don't know. We'll, wow. We will see. So anyway, Warner Brothers. In 1991, they approached Gaiman and wanted to do a film adaptation, and he was apprehensive of it. Uh, The development began in 1996 with Roger Avery attached to direct. Avery uh, is known, I think, best for collaborating with Quentin Tarantino on Pulp Fiction, and then he won Best Original Screenplay for for that film. Gaiman said he enjoyed the script, but Avery was fired due to creative issues with an executive producer. So somebody high up didn't agree and that fell apart. Uh, Following this script, another one was developed in which Gaiman said it was not the worst Sandman script he's ever seen, but it was quite easily the worst he's ever read. So basically the second one was not not, uh, up to snuff for him. This script, I think, is the one you're talking about. It featured radical differences from the source material, such as Dream being a villain and making him Lucifer Morningstar's brother.
0: Wow. Okay. (laughs) It's like a Freddy Krueger movie then, right? I guess so. He's a Dream walking villain. yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: you're right. I see the connection now. Yeah. In 2007, Gaiman remarked that he would rather see no Sandman movie made than a bad Sandman movie. But he added that he felt like the time for a Sandman movie is coming soon. Quote, we need someone who has the same obsession with the source material as Peter Jackson had with The Lord of the Rings or Sam Raimi with the, with Spider-Man. I mean,
0: that's what all writers ro- want right there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you want, you want someone who's obsessed.
1: He said that he could see Terry Gilliam directing the adaptation. Quote, I would get, always give anything to Terry Gilliam uh, forever. So if Terry Gilliam ever <laughs> wants to do Sandman, then as far as I'm concerned, Terry Gilliam should do Sandman. I
0: don't know if I've seen enough Terry Gilliam films. Um, he did 12 Monkeys, right? yeah brazil Brazilian. and i did really like 12 monkeys a lot time bandits so so maybe yeah maybe i could see it
1: yeah you i, I think you'd like he's he makes weird fun movies so yeah i think you'd be into his stuff so eventually david escoyer comes into the picture he pitched a sandman adaptation to warner brothers in 2013 and by february of 2014 he was set to produce the film alongside joseph gordon levitt and gaiman warner brothers planned for joseph gordon levitt to star and possibly direct the film was set to be produced by New Line Cinema as part of a slate of films based on pr- properties published under DC's Vertigo imprint,
0: separate from the DC Extended Universe. Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a dream. We, we can all just take a moment yeah. and kind of picture that. I think it would have worked. I could see him. I, I buy it. I could see him playing that role. I could see him
1: carry it. Honestly, yeah. I could see him do it. Here we go. You want a crazy connection? Eric right. Heiserer was hired to rewrite the film script in March of 2016.
0: Oh wait a minute. So Heisserer is... Shadow and Bone, Showrunner, and then also at adapted the Arrival screenplay. Yep. You nailed it. Nice. Yeah. That, interesting. So that guy was going to, what was he going to do? Was he going to, he was going to work on the screenplay?
1: He was, yeah. And and his background at that time was in horror, like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Final Destination. And he wrote the, uh he wrote the screenplay for the the thing remake that, or the 2011 thing oh, okay. prequel kind of film. We covered that on a bonus episode.
0: Yeah. Cause I remember we talked about him. He had this background, like uh, in horror. Uh, he did something on like YouTube or something with like, Creepypasta story. Creepy yeah. pasta. that's what it
1: was. So immediately after Eric Heiser joined, Joseph Gordon-Levitt departed due to different disagreements with Warner Brothers over the creative direction of the film. The following November, Heisserer turned in his draft but departed stating that the project should be an HBO series instead of a film. Quote, I came to the conclusion the best version of this property exists as an HBO series or limited series, not as a feature film, not even as a trilogy. The structure of the feature film really doesn't mesh with it.
0: Yeah. You know what? And I could see that. Especially if you want it to be as faithful as what we're getting right now, because you can't do that in one movie and even three movies. So that's a, I mean, like as good as that guy has proven himself to be at adapting things, I respect that he tried it and said, you know what? I don't think this is working like I got to have respect for that, because I think too many people would say I'll I'll make it I'll make it fit. You know what I mean? Like they'll they'll cut it and chop it and fit it in there. And that's not always the right thing for the project.
1: Well, and this obviously would stick with the project, this idea of a series. And I think there was a big shift into around this time, you know, t- 2016, 2015, in that area, people. there's a heavy shift into let's make a lot of series and let's go really in-depth with it and try to be faithful. Due to the prolonged development period of the film, in 2010, DC Entertainment shifted focus onto developing a television adaptation. Film director James Mangold pitched a series concept at HBO while consulting with Gaiman on an unofficial basis, but did not materialize due to a p- political turf war at WB. Mangold's notable because he would go on to make um, the Logan, the, oh, okay. the Wolverine film that was like... I did like
0: Logan a lot. Yeah. yeah.
1: It was reported in September 2010 that Warner Brothers Television was licensing the rights to produce a TV series and that Supernatural creator Eric Kripke... Was their preferred candidate to adapt the saga? You mentioned this last hey, week. Hey, that
0: was another one I saw because I, I mentioned yeah. that one last week. Yeah.
1: Yep. And Gaiman later revealed that he disapproved of Kripke's take, and development on the television adaptation halted because of Goyer's film was progressing smoothly. So they're almost like simultaneously developing this. Oh wow. The the show and the film. They're trying to see what's going to work out and end up better.
0: It's interesting because Kripke, like I like I like Supernatural. He I think he departed the show after season. Five or so. I, I might be wrong about that, but I remember liking his run a lot. Um, it's not like my favorite show. There are super fans out there. I think that it's enjoyable, um, but I can see how, and, and I think there's a lot of influence on what he does from something like Sandman. Um, and I can see him saying, like, oh yeah, I can do this, but his style might not be the right fit. Honestly, the more I think about it, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, and, and maybe that's not giving him enough credit and, and, you know, that maybe he can adapt something differently than he made Supernatural. It's like, I don't want to put it him in a It was a box.
1: CW show. It was a CW show. Yeah. They tend to have that sort of CW vibe.
0: There's certain, I'm sure there's a lot of constraints that he was working under, but um, I don't know. I can also see that it, it turning into something akin with Supernatural and, and that's not what you want for Sam. Right.
1: That that monster of the week format is is fun, and when you have great characters, it's really cool. But it, it you know it can get really tired, and it can be tough to to keep it going in ways and stuff. But I, then again, I do love having something out there where that's just like an easily accessible genre type show like that. that and there's that some
0: has. great like there's some legitimately yeah. great storylines. And I believe it. Yeah, I
1: think I've seen the first season, and that was And it. the first
0: season might be the weakest of the first five. So yeah, yeah.
1: So around 2018, Game is working on the television adaptation of Good Omens, which we're familiar with mm-hmm. <laughs> we we covered earlier in the podcast if you want to go check that out yeah listener love good omens when Goyer approached him again about a television adaptation of the Sandman by that point Goyer had several additional successful screenplays including the Dark Knight trilogy so originally approached him before the Dark Knight went through had the Dark Knight trilogy and then now is coming back Goyer connected Gaiman to screenwriter Alan Heinberg a fan of Gaiman's work while Heinberg initially refused his work offer to work on the series as he perceived it as unfilmable, Goyer managed to convince him to do, do so as he was planning to adapt the comic as a series. Heinberg became the showrunner and executive producer and collaborated with Gaiman, who was also an executive producer while creating the series.
0: You know what? I don't know if anything's unfilmable at this point. <laughs> How many times have we, have we talked about a project where people said, oh, this is unfilmable, and then... Something kind of amazing actually happens. Like, there's almost like that challenge can sometimes actually really drive creativity. Game of Thrones was considered unfilmable. Uh, Annihilation, unfilmable. Like, there's been a lot of things that you know along the way that have actually been pretty successful. Dune, Dune, absolutely. Yeah,
1: I I agree. I do feel like that that term is sort of just like a becoming a thing where you're like, it's hard. That's a hard one. Yeah,
0: it's hard or it's expensive. It's (laughs)
1: So according to the Hollywood Reporter, Warner Brothers pitched the series to multiple networks, including HBO, which declined to move ahead with it due to its massive budget. Mm -hmm. Now this gets back into the streaming wars of it all. Netflix snapped it up as part of its attempt to obtain big intellectual properties and attract subscribers. So you know this this idea of like spending a bunch of money, spending a bunch of money, make something big, make something big. It's great for us, yeah. As long as like the attention is given to them. But I do feel like this this leads to what we saw with like Archive eighty one, yeah, things and getting some canceled. of that kind of stuff, right? Right? Like so you you throw a bunch of money. If this so I, it feels like to me so far, there's good buzz with the Sandman. They've yeah. pulled off something big here, and I, I'm sure there's gonna be a season two. I hope so, man. But imagine, but imagine it's like slightly less well received, and this is it. You know. Yeah. That's that's the that's the double edged sword of it all.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the risk you're that's the thing you're. I mean you can't get around that, right? Like that's yeah. that's the that's the game.
1: Yeah. So Gaiman said he would be more involved in this than he was with American Gods. Okay. So more involved in the Sandman than he was with American Gods, but less apparently involved than the 2019 adaptation of Good Omens.
0: Okay. Yeah, he was very involved in that.
1: Very involved. Yeah, and it felt like you know that sort of Gaiman. Uh, Douglas Adams style a lot in Good Omens. And I'm not getting quite as Terry much of Pratchett? that here. No, no, no. But that, that sort of vibe. Terry Pratchett was the one who worked on Good Omens, but right. they were sort of in the same vein as like the comedy of a Douglas Adams. I see.
0: Yes, I agree. I just wanted to make sure like people right. didn't think you you mixed those two up. Right. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. I'm sure people would have thought that I did.
1: Yeah. So that sort of comedy that, that's, that lean to the tone. Yeah. And I think that there's less of that in this show. Yeah. I almost agree. almost for the better, I would say. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, I would. There is a lot of humor in in the comics so far, but yeah. I'm liking that this is. There's a little tiny, maybe a tiny bit of comedy from like Patton Oswalt's character, Matthew. Yeah. But besides that, it's staying pretty pretty dark, and and like I like that tone for the show. Agreed. A couple other things to note before we get into the episodes here. Just as far as Heinberg and Goyer have said, uh, even though he's not as involved as he was in Good Omens, everything, every change goes through Neil's eyes you know passes through his desk Mm. and he he gives feedback on it so the changes that they've made are you know of the same uh story i would think like he's he's okaying them and i think for the most part i feel he'll i feel those touches too and i think you know many times you'll hear a project and they're like so and so is the creator is signing off on these things and that could just mean like yeah 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 good job Mm -hmm. but i do feel like gaiman's like very meticulous and and like paying notes. attention a lot yeah, to yeah. the notes here. Gaiman talked about how the update to ha- include more Matthew is is uh, in order to sort of cover their bases with the thought bubbles instead of having him like give all the narration. He at least has another character he can talk to about it mm-hmm. and sort of get a lot of the details in that way. I also read that Heinberg said, "quote The Sandman comics were leagues ahead of everybody in the late '80s in terms of the depiction of women, race, sexuality, and gender." He also said we knew we wanted to expand the world and make some changes while creating the series. So, just noting that mm-hmm. and kind of updating for the modern era, I think, yeah. is has been cool and and Gaiman. I've heard Gaiman talk about it too, and he's he's in love
0: with a lot of the changes that they've made. Yeah, that's why we got such a diverse cast. Like totally behind behind that. Um, yeah, I mean that's all really interesting. I guess we could let's maybe we want to talk a little bit about Matthew. Um, this is a character who we haven't gotten in the comics yet. I don't know if he exists in the comics.
1: I think I had it spoiled for me. And just in the fact that he is, has a smaller role than he has here. So I think he does exist.
0: Okay. Yeah. We haven't got to him yet. So yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a show edition only, um, Patton Oswalt voiced, um, I like Patton Oswalt. He's funny. Um, I'm not sure about this edition. I'm still Mm -hmm. on the fence about it. Um, yeah, I can see that. There are moments where I get it. Like, I get what it's doing. It is doing a lot of that. Like, there's a lot of storytelling going on in the thought bubbles of the comics that you don't have. If Dream's just walking by himself, stoic, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know what's going on. Whereas you got Patton Oswald there with him, talking to him, making him interact and explain things for someone who doesn't understand, which is what we are as an audience, right? So you kind of need something like that. He is also... A little bit like uh, of a cartoony, sidekick, comic relief type character. And, sure. and that yeah. can work. Like there's a reason those characters work. But if it's very on the nose, sometimes like I, I can see it so clearly that that's what they're doing that it right. bothers me a little bit. So I don't know. That's I, I'm on the fence about him. How do you feel about Matthew?
1: I agree, I can definitely see what you're talking about. I, I think that what we're what we're experiencing is the accelerated timeline for this for a character like this. I think you have this moody character in dream and then you build it up, build it up, build it up in the comics. and I can totally see at some point needing to break that. With the with splicing in this comic relief and sort of fleshing out the world in this way, Um, and I think that that could that could work really well. It was just so quick in the show; it was like within two or three episodes. We had
0: barely gotten to know Dream, yeah, as
1: as his serious,
0: moody self, yeah,
1: right. So I, I can definitely see it kind of being too too much too soon.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if I would say that, but it it's got that's its failure. That's its failure state and I'm a little concerned going forward that we could be sliding in that territory, but I'm withholding judgment a little bit.
1: Yeah, I would say that I think I enjoyed it uh, for what it was, but I do notice that without an addition like that, you can get sort of more of what I've experienced so far with the Sandman, which is like much more dark and moody and, and like, uh, I could, again, I could see this being a factor later, but so far my experience with Sandman has been dark and this is sort of cutting a lot of comedy in pretty quickly. Um, so changing it almost a little fundamentally, but I did, I like Pat Oswalt's character. Like I'm for it. Uh, I feel like I can, I can enjoy it.
0: And this isn't maybe fair to say to him, but like, he's got such a note, like, like I know Pat Oswalt so well and like, I don't know if everybody feels this way, but I just picture him when he's talking as this raven. And like, uh, I almost want you to bring in a funny person who isn't as famous so that you don't have this problem.
1: I can kind of see it. I, I, I. I like Patton Oswalt to the point that, like, I want him in as much as I can get him in. Yeah. But I can do, I you know, if he, he does this a lot, yeah. you know, there's a lot of Patton Oswalt out there. Voice we'll see. Acting. We'll see.
0: I'm on the fence, but I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying it's bad.
1: All right. So episode one is called Sleep of the Just. While attempting to apprehend a nightmare known as the Corinthian, Morpheus, also known as Dream, is captured in an occult ritual by British aristocrat Roderick Burgess, who was attempting to capture death. Roderick steals Morpheus' totem of power, his helm, a pouch of sand, and a ruby, all of which are eventually taken by Roderick's resentful lover, Ethel Cripps, who is pregnant with Roderick's child. Morpheus' imprisonment causes an epidemic of sleepy sickness, which lasts for 106 years. In 2021, Roderick's son, Alex, is an old man who continues to keep Morpheus in prison and is cared for by his partner, Paul. After Paul accidentally erases part of the ruins, keeping Morpheus bound, Morpheus reaches into the dream of one of the guards to destroy his cage, allowing him to escape, condemning Alex to an eternal sleep.
0: Dream is captured by the sorcerer Charles Dance, <laughs> um, T- yes. Tywin Lannister. Um, I, I was happy to see him. He, I, I like him a lot. He always plays a villain, it feels like. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he has had a f- couple roles in his filmography where he wasn't a villain, but damn, it doesn't seem like there's many of them. He's good at it. He's I mean, really he's intimidating.
1: He's he's de- definitely very, he's a presence on screen. He's so a fun, I, I he's a fun
0: performance in uh, The Last Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Remember yes, that movie? It's been it's been
1: way too long. So I don't remember him in that at he's all. He's the bad guy. I don't remember yeah, him at he's all. He's good in it. Um, I think that's an adaptation too. We might cover. Yeah, right?
0: I think you're right. Yeah, that's a, that we should have that on our list. Yeah, I, I like him a lot. And, and this opening, I, you know, it's it's pretty much right out of the comics. We get introduced to the dreaming earlier. I noticed they they very quickly set up what the dreaming looks like. We get this sort of dream of this professor as he falls asleep in the wagon. And this whole thing before the even opening credits, basically, where we we get introduced to the concept of the dreaming, um, and and who and who uh, dream Morpheus is.
1: What do you think of that as a cold open versus what we get in the comic?
0: It's a different approach, right? Like, because in the comic, you're it's it's very slowly doled out to you. There's this mysterious figure who's been captured. You don't know anything about him. You're in this house. You find out that there's magic, and and things start to like build from there. I think that's a more patient approach. That's an approach I tend to like. That's not always what you get in film and in, in a TV where they're worried about hooking audiences from the jumps and they want to show you big flashy effects and they want to get you bought in on some sort of extraordinary concept from the jump. Um, I don't know. How, how do you feel about those two different approaches? I do feel like you see that a lot, right? Like you see one or the other.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the slowly doled out with the mystery of the character as an introduction works really well. I also think that there's they're being conscious of the fact that people know the story. There are some, there's like a good portion of the audience that know the story and they just want to like rip the Band-Aid off and get it started and then know who's in the cage and, and you know, like... Uh, have, I don't know. There's something to be said for that too. Like realizing who this is while they're in the cage and how dangerous that could be for the people who are outside of it. And then just like, you know, the gut punch of hundred years going by while they have this guy captured and how, how brutal that is for anyone to go through. We also
0: get the Corinthian from the Mm -hmm. beginning, which is a character we just got introduced to. I think when we finished up our our last issue, Um, uh, he's from the beginning, he seems like he's going to be a much bigger player, at least in this first season. Um, and yeah, so we see him doing his stuff where we learn more about the Burgess family and, uh, the son, there's this whole, uh, story that plays out with him that actually culminates in him shooting this Raven, which wasn't in the comic, um, this named Raven. Now my wife was watching with me and (laughs) literally the Raven lands on the thing and starts tapping and he looks up at it and she goes, if something happens to this Raven, I'm done. And when she finished saying the word I'm done, it exploded.
1: <laughs> and was she I, done?
0: I, no, she's not done, but I, okay, I started laughing and, and I had to just pause it and be like, that was the timing was just so perfect. It was like, you couldn't plan it better. The thing just exploded. I didn't know it was going to happen. I think she assumed I knew, but I was like, no, this isn't in the comics. So I didn't know that was going to happen. And it was, it was pretty comical in a dark way. Um, yeah, I thought all of this stuff sort of playing up the Burgesses and, and like showing their family dynamic actually pays dividends throughout the episodes we've seen in that I understand the connections and the characters a little better than I even did in the comics. Um, you know, John, uh, who becomes Dr. Destiny later on, being the son of Ethel, who was with Burgess. Like some of that stuff, I kind of knew where there was connections there, but like, I don't know, that shifted aside because it didn't feel super important. Whereas now I'm like, oh, that's what, how the all these characters connect. And it, it became more clear to me. Maybe that was clear to everybody else. But for me, honestly, I wasn't like super solid. If there had been a quiz, I would have got some of that family tree messed up, you know?
1: <laughs> I didn't know how to feel about making the son of Burgess a sympathetic character. Yeah. Uh, but he was very sympathetic. Oh, and then- My wife
0: absolutely hated him. So that's interesting that you found him sympathetic. No, she hated him. From the jump, she thought he was like the worst. Even before he shot the bird. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I think it was, okay. it, I don't know. I, had, I mean, she. I'm not her. So, but like, I, I just remember she kept being like, this guy's terrible. This guy's terrible. I hate him. <laughs> and then I think shooting the bird also definitely sold him being terrible. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he they made him sympathetic in some ways, but also like he's pathetic in a lot of other ways too
1: for sure yeah he anyway I, the, like the building out of a character cuz i thought in the comic it sort of just jumps ahead and he's old we we see him and he's like you know has a conversation or so also like there is a naked man in this orb in the floor and like what this gay person is responding to from childhood growing all the way up in that and and like i just thought like there was like kind of even a connection there like a little bit like the reaching out and some of that stuff and and like almost like making making dreams seem desirable early on mm. is what i would say too you know what i mean and yeah. to everyone to to all people you know i i found to be interesting because i we we found in the first few issues like i said he's kind of drawn in the comic he's drawn in a strange way he's very gaunt and like his head is elongated and and like his hair is crazy because he's been captured for like 80 years or whatever and and he's that's like his body sort of like just changing. I mean,
0: I will say Tom Sturridge looked fucking skinny in these scenes. (laughs) He looked like he had not eaten in a month. So um, he definitely, he definitely pulled that off. I mean, uh, so I guess this opens up just in general thoughts on dream thoughts on uh, Tom Sturridge playing dream. This is a incredibly difficult role, I think, because what makes Sandman so cool in the comics is his otherworldliness. his, the fact that he is an endless and he is, not a human and the comic does a lot of fun things to remind us of that where it's like you talk about where like his his uh face will change his eyes will change his cloak will change the way he's drawn will shift and you kind of get the sense that he's not completely bound to his body
1: well he's also so tied to dreams and dreamlike behavior yeah but
0: when you cast a human being to play that character (laughs) like in many ways it's going to humanize Dream and make Dream seem just like a man, even though he's not. That's the that's the risk, right? Is you're going to make Dream seem too much like a man, and I think they've done a pretty good job with that, um, because that's a really hard thing, honestly, to to yeah. keep him feeling bigger than that, bigger than life, bigger than mortals, and and not just feel like another superhero who is a human who's got superpowers. He's not a human with superpowers. And I think that's important to remember. Yeah,
1: I, but look, to your point, I definitely felt like he was much more human in the series so far. Like I've felt, he, you know, it's and impossible. And I think he,
0: he has to be because you, got, you cast a human being to play him, right?
1: <laughs> and the, the attraction, again, like many characters are attracted to, to Dream yeah. in more subtle ways, I would say.
0: In the comics or in the show? In the show. Okay.
1: I think that's a cool place to have Dream because- yeah. Goth icon, man. <laughs> he, yeah, that, in addition to the fact that he's also a like an embodiment of dreams and what yeah. people, you know, he's not desire, so we we don't know about that endless very much, yet, right? But he, but he is a dream and dreamy and the idea, you know, something. I think he's,
0: you know, and there's something to be said about maybe this is going to reveal something about me and my dreams, but like to yeah. me, like <laughs> is this awakening something in me right here now? Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh to me, there's something different between like desire and dream, like dream desire, because like often dream desire is like sort of you can't fulfill it. Like, I don't right. know. It's like unattainable. And and yeah, so like, the fact that he is desirable yet somehow unattainable actually kind of makes sense for a dream.
1: Yeah. And again, you know, Constantine or Constantine, we get a version
0: Constantine, of Constantine. Yeah. I, I'd never heard that pronunciation before, but maybe that's like a British, the British way of doing sure it. I'm sure it is. Yeah, we get, a, we get a, 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 sh- there's definitely an attraction there as well. Um, yeah. Well we're not there yet I have a lot to say about Constantine
1: So we heard the name of Unity uh, as like in, so they, we saw, see these sh- snapshots of people who've fallen into this slumber because Dream has been captured Yeah um, Do you think we'll come back around to Unity? Absolutely I yeah. think we will Yeah I think so too
0: I like to see that we got him reaching into the the sand Yeah We saw him use that to get out with the guards I think one of them was read a Stephen King book
1: I saw Stephen King I couldn't tell if it yeah. was it or I not I couldn't
0: tell which book it was but I think they were which is just a cool little connection to that thing I noticed in the comics um, so much fun stuff. One of the one of the moments from this opening episodes I wanted to highlight was, and, and this was my favorite. Like, okay, they're gonna do Sandman right. Was when um, Alex, I think it is, comes into the room and he's sitting in the in the chair, and his eyes are lighting up and his face is darkened and the roof is coming off and he looks fucking scary and he looks cool and i was like okay this looks good
1: yeah i totally agree i was so taken with that stuff and they they pulled it off i love that they kept his face in shadow for as long as they did the glimmer in the eye they did really well with that and to get that much light in someone's eye like that the lights has to be really intense like and it just looked so good and so cool and i was like man are we going to like maintain this for the whole series and we'll see i don't think we will
0: yeah i mean he's very human in a lot of things and and and, and you know he is in the comics too somewhat but i think you're just going to get more of that in the show by you just kind of have to
1: I think that Paul who is uh the son's partner I believe that's his name he definitely like lets dream out on purpose right there's sort of a look back like a oop whoopsie yeah sort of, like, which and in the, the comic
0: I think it was just an accident not not like this on purpose so there's some small changes like that but otherwise pretty pretty faithful but
1: i think that's cool
0: too because there's clearly
1: at least these people aren't just like robotic like villains there there's like they do feel the sun feels bad about it obviously but there's a couple of things that stack up that that he just can't quite yeah, let him his partner free is and, like
0: this is fucked up
1: exactly yeah and he kind of clearly feels that way for a long time uh yeah, I think they really did a good job of pulling this first episode off and, and it sells a lot, especially because most of it can't be from from Dream's point of view.
0: And honestly, like the more I was thinking about it, like it's kind of a tough pilot. It's kind of a tough thing to like really get you hooked. And I wouldn't be surprised if people who have not read the comics take a few episodes to actually get on board with the show. Like they might be like, oh, this is pretty cool, but like not actually invested in care because truthfully dream is a little bit hard to like connect with He's so mysterious and so otherworldly and inhuman there's a lot of big magic going on which to some people is a turnoff um it could take a minute and like i could see to me episode three was where i thought average viewers are really going to start to connect um so we can we can um talk about that when we get there one more thing i wanted to talk about with tom sturridge before we leave behind his performance i mean i'm sure we'll touch back in on it I love the his voice. I actually think it doesn't feel like it fits him. Like, I'm like, how is this coming out of this no, human being? I,
1: I, th- I feel like it might be doctored in some way. Like, it might be. I don't know, man. Yeah. <laughs> he kills that voice, though. I, I was blown yeah. away when I first it's like, heard it's it. It's like
0: a Batman voice, but without being in Batman mode, he just has this deep voice it's unreal i'm like yeah it's like are they they're bringing in someone else to do this voice but i think it's him and it sounds great
1: i think it's just maybe made a little deeper in post or something
0: I, whatever microphone he's using i gotta get me one of those right I'll tell you that <laughs> it's so
1: good it's so much <laughs> like next
0: time you guys come on i sound like that <laughs> a
1: lot of depth to the audio there right the like
0: dreaming <laughs> i don't even know i also want to say that the helmet looks better than i thought that they could pull off helmet looks good it looks good when he's wearing it it looks cool man and he's so fucking tiny. I don't know. There's something about that 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 makes him seem almost inhuman when he's because he's so thin.
1: Yeah. So I think we should jump into this next episode since we're talking about Dream and, and him interacting with people. So Imperfect Hosts, Morpheus returns to the Dreaming, his kingdom and the source of dreams. There he finds his palace in ruins due to his prolonged absence. Morpheus visits Cain and Abel, a pair of dysfunctional brothers, to retrieve their pet gargoyle, Gregory, which will restore his power enough to summon the fates. Morpheus successfully summons the fate mothers who inform him of the whereabouts of his equipment. The pouch of sand is in the possession of exorcist Joanna Constantine. His helm is in the hands of a demon in hell and the ruby used by Ethel's son, John D. Morpheus sets off on his quest to retrieve his items with assistance from his advisor, Matthew the Raven. Back in the dreaming, Morpheus sends a baby gargoyle to Cain and Abel to replace their previous companion.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we meet Gregory the gargoyle here. Mm-hmm. We meet Cain and Abel, a dysfunctional set of brothers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just think is a funny way to describe them when they're <laughs> murdering each other and over and over again. Well, one is murdering the other over and over yeah. again. Um I, Speaking of, so
1: you talked about the raven and how Annalisa, your wife, was maybe done when the raven thing happened. I was wondering how this went over. <laughs> not that?
0: great. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was actual tears. Uh, um which like you know hopefully she's okay with me saying i was very close um they made the, they made it out to be a dog basically like a dog yeah. horse yes they're like oh this is a dog horse and if you like dogs or horses you're going to like gregory a lot and i did and it was sad to see what happened to him um, I mean, playing with the ball, I think, was pretty direct. <laughs> Basically, you had a little doghouse out there.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. You mentioned how it would take people a couple episodes to click in and how yeah. it's,
0: not, it's hard to relate. And they didn't do him any fav- dream any favors in this episode. No, they made him seem like a dick here. Like, he's like, yeah, this thing's awesome. It's kind of your dog and I'm going to ask it to sacrifice itself. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Absorb it. Yeah, it, it was yeah. tough. It was, and I was like, "Damn, they're really fucking pulling on the heartstrings with this right away." How do I feel about the baby gargoyle at the end? Does that make it up for it? Not really. <laughs>
0: okay, and this actually again clarified some stuff that happened in the comics to me because I think this is basically what happens, but I wasn't clear on exactly what was what was happening and why.
1: There's a lot the going comments. on, I think, in the in the panels that you have to like look into. I agree with you. I don't. I don't think I noticed it. Well,
0: I think there's a lot of like reading between the lines and like understand and like in retrospect, I'm sure the no more you know about the rules of the world, the more you can, like, look back and see what was happening, but I don't think it was clearly stated. Maybe it was. I don't know. Maybe I just was still orienting myself, but like, that this was a sacrifice that had to be made, and uh, you know what I mean? Like, and-, and this was something he was asking from them, and there was just some stuff that, like, I wasn't as clear on in the comics, and and, you know, kudos to the show to making that for, for taking that and making it make sense, making us understand the stakes of it and care about it.
1: I mean, like you said, it was a tearjerker, like right away, this Gregory character, and then you know, like I said, I don't think that the baby gargoyle necessarily makes up for it, but it's cute too. It's it's nice that they that he did something, I guess. It helps,
0: right? It shows that that brings him back because otherwise you're kind of like fuck him. But then yeah, like bringing sh- bringing that little gift to them is nice. Um, you feel you feel sorry for uh, Abel, I guess, who gets killed by Cain. Um, they're pretty similar to how they are in the comics and uh, my wife actually asked me while we were watching she was like are they in the comics and I was like yeah and she's like are they this weird and I'm like maybe weirder (laughs)
1: Uh, yeah, a <laughs> because you remember bit. like
0: in the comics i was like what is up with Cain and abel they're very strange they are strange um, and, in, and if anything they actually kind of explained them a little bit more in the show whereas in the comics again i'm like i don't know what's going on with these guys very weird
1: you kind of have to bring in the knowledge of Cain and abel to, to and whereas this kind of like spells it out for you and like yeah.
0: there's a moment when uh i think it's abel wakes up and, and he starts he kind of lays it out for the new gargoyle he like explains to the new gargoyle what is going on
1: that is from the comic he, he does tell him a story about like a brother but he, loves
0: it th- felt like it was more explanation than we yeah, got
1: maybe a little more but he does say there's a brother who loves his brother and never hurts him or anything like that so obviously that's something they that wanted um but the best part of this episode i thought was the fate mothers i love that the summoning really of cool the
0: hecate yeah which which like we we gave a lot of credit to Macbeth, i think last week but honestly like it's touching back on older myth right like this is this is all like Greek or Roman or who knows like this goes back way back and that was something that Macbeth was touching on and Shakespeare was touching on purpose
1: and it's not lost on me that Gaiman is kind of a mythology expert too absolutely he
0: did some I, I was watching some of it and like honestly it was it was like history nerding out beyond even my typical appreciation where they were having him Answer questions about like Roman and Greek mythology or something on like GQ or something, and I'm like, I watched it as well. Yeah, damn, this guy knows his stuff. Like he knew
1: all. Apparently, there's like these twelve trials of Hercules, and he knew them all off the top of his head, and it's he wild. like knew everything about it. And yeah.
0: he's written other books about it, and he's written American Gods, which is about this stuff. And yeah, yeah, I
1: really want to read Norse mythology. Like Norse
0: mythology. Yeah, I don't even know what kind of book that is. Like <laughs> it sounds to me like an academic textbook. I assume that's not what it is. I don't
1: think <laughs> so. I think he make. I think he gives a narrative sort of like yeah, like novel format to it so i i really want to read that i they need to adapt it so we can cover it <laughs> right give me the excuse uh yeah i thought the hecate stuff worked worked really well i think the edit, editing was doing a lot of heavy did you notice that here. they did
0: my thing i talked about yeah, the snake. they did it with the snake instead but like they did the thing where like one started eating it and then it went around to each one and they were all eating it it was cool i felt
1: like the editing he did a lot of heavy lifting in this part too i love i was like damn that's when I, re- I felt like we were in safe hands too i was like watching them cut back and forth and the disorienting look of all three of them sort of all being the same being and like uh, just the environments i'm starting to buy a lot more and the way that like he you know the way he like Drops all that stuff in the water, right? Isn't that how he kind of summons them? Or no? He, at one point, he like drops stuff in the water, and gets pulled in. I don't even know. He if that's gets all episode. these. He
0: gets different things, elements from other people's dreams. He, he gets, gets the crossroads. Um, the crossroads, because you have to meet him at a crossroads, and he gets uh, something. I can't remember all the things he gets, but he goes to multiple people's different dreams. There was like a film fan. Oh, it was a noose. It was a noose from a film, like an English film fan, Japanese or something. film fan. I think that's it was. what. It, yeah. yeah, it was cool. Um, I think some of those details are in the comic. Um, I, I wanted to shout out the river that, um, he like falls into to go to talk to them. And we see it again, I think at the end of the episode when he walks down into it. Um, it's cool. Cool. I don't, I I don't remember that in the comic. I'm sure it is in there at some point, but they really made a big deal out of it here. Um, it looked great. I thought this was some of the best effects I'd seen. Um, you know, big fan. Some of the effects that at times are a little tougher is some of the, um, some of his castle. Um, and that's like, I know how hard, like I can imagine. I, actually, I can't imagine. <laughs> All I know is I know enough to know how hard it would be to make that look real. And like, it looks really good, but you can kind of tell it's not real, right? You know what I mean? Like there's just like, it's because it's so fantastic. Fantastic. The design is so otherworldly. It's really hard to sell that. And yet it is still a building. So like we know what buildings look like. So it's really hard like when they're in this building. And I don't know. To me, it always kind of looks like. And the decision making
1: just comes down to like how much of the money. Of the budget do you want to put into actually making
0: and this it's game? not a it's not a problem it's not it's a just, huge yeah.
1: part of any of the you know it's it's like a thing that needs to yeah. be there but it's not like the biggest plot point point. and
0: i don't care like ultimately if i if, if everything else is good i don't care about that and everything else is good enough to where i don't care
1: i think it's good enough to where you can there, if you suspend disbelief and you're enjoying exactly. the show it doesn't matter for sure yeah right.
0: if you're not looking at it you're not picking at it you're fine
1: that's what people are going for too but i did think that the interior uh some of the rooms look awesome like some of the sets that they built, whatever that is, I thought that they—they they, it looks really cool, especially where it's like sort of like a throne room and everything's like yeah. shattered in there. Up close
0: to the throne is always yeah. cool, which by the way, we didn't talk about Lucien. Lucian has been changed here. Uh, I, I like this version of the character. Uh, the role has been sort of clarified to me. For some reason, I find this version more trustworthy than Lucian in the in the book. Maybe I should trust Lucian in the book more. I don't know, but for whatever reason, I'm like I was like, what is up with this character? Seems
1: like sort of your Alfred Pennyworth sort of character for sure that we can trust. I, I feel like yeah. I trust both, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I like this version for sure. So episode three is called "Dream a Little Dream of Me." Morpheus tracks down Constantine, asking for the return of his pouch. However, Constantine remembers that she left it at her ex-girlfriend's apartment. They team up to track down the girlfriend whose home has been warped by the abuse of the powder. Constantine exercises to cure the girlfriend of her addiction, but is left distraught when Morpheus is reluctant to help her pass. Seeing Constantine's guilt, Morpheus finally agrees to put her ex-girlfriend to rest before departing. Meanwhile, Ethel, whose life has been prolonged by a protection amulet, travels to an institution in Buffalo, New York, to visit John, who has a dark obsession with Morpheus's ruby. She passes the protection amulet to John, immediately ages and dies. John then uses the amulet's power to escape the institution.
0: I think this is the episode that's going to get people bought into this show. Um, multiple reasons. We did see a flash of Joanna Constantine. Constantine. Uh, we see a flash of... Um, uh, Lupin uh, from Harry Potter of uh, 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 David, David Duelist, yeah, uh, Dulles as John here um, so we see these characters that are coming up and are going to be important but this is the episode where we really get them yeah. I absolutely love this version of Constanti- Constantine I think she's great I mean I, I hope you like her too but uh, Jenna Coleman is-, is apparently the actor I didn't know her she's been in Doctor Who apparently for a long time I'm very
1: familiar with Jenna Coleman because of that reason
0: no experience with her and I love her in this role She's awesome. She's funny, incredibly engaging. I want to watch an entire spin-off series about her. I
1: agree. That was a comment I was going to make for yeah. sure.
0: She's so good. Like, I you know, I fell in love. She's great.
1: Yes, she's amazing. Yeah. So Jenna Coleman played one of the companions in Doctor Who and I, one of my favorite companions, too. She, Clara, she plays like a very like integral role to the history, as a lot of them tend to do um, to the doctor. and always been a big fan and so i had no idea she was in the show so just she just popped up on the screen and i was like <laughs> oh my god let's i was really excited and uh yeah this this was the perfect way to to bridge the gap with like the constantine connection from the comics and it seems that they're saying that she's like a descendant of some kind of Constantine
0: some sort of Constantine family yeah
1: right which totally works for me and then like you said has the characteristics of Constantine that I wanted to see from whoever Dream teamed up with and just absolutely killed it she's so engaging she's funny she's like witty and cool and like I she was great
0: she's great um she's she's talking to a priest in a church and goes Jesus fuck <laughs> Which just, I love that. <laughs> like, That's another thing.
1: Like, the, yeah, I love that they they went there with the like like they say fuck a bunch and like I, I'm that you know that the kind of says says hey this is an, a more adult show. She just on she the,
0: tells uh, she tells Dream to get in line, bruv. Which is yeah, funny. Like uh, it's very she's very British. It's very good. She's a hot mess, which I which I love. Um, her home is a mess. Her dreams are a mess. She's great, and they set up the sexual tension between her and Dream, which I actually think works really well. And I hope they explore that further uh, because I think it. she's an interesting character that I want to see more of, honestly.
1: You know, I don't think in the comic we're going to get a lot more Constantine. Uh, so, you know, but I think Jenna Coleman's I hope they bring her back I hope they bring back Joanna Constantine because I think like you said the relationship between the two was really working for me I was like damn this let's explore this more and I would totally watch a Jenna Coleman like spin-off Joanna Constantine what if it
0: absolutely sign me up creates man. a
1: spin-off I actually saw somebody online it's funny enough say that like they want a spin-off show with like every speaking character in the show because <laughs>
0: like, they felt like they fleshed out all the characters really well and they were really yeah. well realized. I can see that man. Uh, okay, so Matthew the Raven is also introduced here. I thought it was pretty cool. the idea that he's he he was a a man who has died he doesn't know the rules you know he's he seems like he kind of thinks that Lucian is the boss and not him. um there's some things that like he only gets away with because supposedly he's so new um. It all mostly works for me. Um, I see what they're doing, so I, I'm a little bit on the fence about it. But you know, whatever. The, I like the other the episode so well that like even my little bit of misgivings about that, it's fine. Yeah. Um
1: The it was crazy to see sort of the the what the sand does brought to life uh, in the show in the way because it was kind of in a way like less fantastical but more sad. It was really sad. Yeah.
0: No, it was it, this was better in the comics. Constantine falls and he's like falling and then, and then Through Morpheus dreams pulls him back. And, yeah. And, that, and that, that's basically all that happens. It's like a falling dream, but like this is so much more sad, right? Like he, she has this reconnection with her girlfriend uh, or her ex or the person she left or whatever. Um, And it's going well, but then they start getting in a fight and then she starts to apologize, but then she hits her with like these emotional haymakers. And then she starts just like dissolving into dust and i thought that was a great moment when he comes walking in and tells her to wake up and she's she thinks he did this to her and he's like it's not me it's the sand um i don't know i just i love that the moments where dreams knowledge and how he's an eternal who endless knows exactly and endless yes but yeah. he, i mean he's been a he's been alive eternally right he is an immortal is what i should probably say i keep
1: saying eternal as well but I, yeah. I mean like someone who is eternal yeah
0: exactly but like that that knowledge and that majesty that surrounds the the king of dreams these when in these moments when he can pull that off i think it works really well
1: yeah and again i i like as much as i think this episode continue to humanize dream in a way that you don't really get so far in the comic as far as we've been Well, because
0: she keeps telling him like wait outside and he does <laughs> yeah which he doesn't do a lot of that in the comics
1: well he's sort of like all powerful in the comic yeah and you know uh, like the stuff with Matthew like you said sort of humanizes him more like having to deal with some witty like banter back and forth that kind of thing
0: he's got this little raven who won't listen to him Right, which, like, yeah, everybody listens to him in the comics, basically.
1: I actually, and so, like, they fight a demon that, like, comes out and and, and during this, like, wedding... There's this
0: whole thing with, like, is, is it one of the royals? She thinks it's a princess, but then it's actually the, the guy she's going to get married to. And the way that fucking demon burst out of that body, I was so glad we didn't get Black Smoke. Uh, speaking of Kripke and, and Supernatural, which, like, I understand they're working on CW budget, but, like, seeing the demon come out of this body... That was a lot scarier.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was. And that's some of that that gore and...
0: Arms literally reach out of the mouth. Like two fucking arms come out and split them down the middle. Like that's... That's dark. That's cool. It was.
1: It was. So we also need to touch on the Buffalo, New York stuff where Ethel and
0: John are speaking and she ages and all that. And we're about to move into his journey, right? We we get other stuff going on on the side, but much like the comics. And this is why I was saying like, it's so, it's actually really, really um, close to the comics.
1: Very faithful. Yeah.
0: Because the way, even the way John's story starts to play out, like we get hints of it in a couple of volumes leading up to the 24 hour Big reveal, right?
1: Well, and and I was going to talk about this, like the idea of something being so successful and so well-received and so like uniquely its own thing in a comic form, to not see that as a storyboard is like a
0: huge miss. It's an opportunity, right?
1: Yeah, it's an opportunity. You
0: look at it and you go, that needs to be made
1: exactly and and you do it in those ways the ways that people are reacting because these artists have already done a lot of the work for you and you can you can work together you know stand on the shoulders of giants and and like create something that that people want to see brought live action. And, and so, yeah, I, I love that they're doing a lot of that. And I think it's paying dividends. I think that they're able to focus on, they can say, all right, we already know somewhat visually how the shot when he's in the prison is going to look with the eyes and the shadow. And we can focus on getting other things in line. As soon
0: as we saw, as soon as I saw David Doolis <laughs> was going to play this character, I was like, I honestly, if you like gave me a, like a, a 24 hours to cast and I could have anybody I might yeah. have landed on David Thulis for this character. Like he's so good for this role.
1: Amazing. And he's also awesome in the role.
0: Because he's so good at being unassuming, but also incredibly terrifying.
1: Yeah. He's got, like this weird depth to him that he can just flip on a switch.
0: And a little bit unhinged. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. And one of the other moments that I absolutely love from this episode, he gets the amulet, which is different. It's a change, I think. Um, I'm not sure exactly what happens. I think the amulet just breaks. And then she ages, right? Like he he doesn't get the protection. Remember, he gets like
1: handed an eyeball through the cages, and that was, I think, supposed to be sort of the same thing.
0: Yeah, but he doesn't have this protection thing that he then gives to the driver next episode. That that doesn't happen in the he comic. He doesn't give it to
1: the driver for sure, but he he is given something and that says, like, your mom passed away. Here's this thing. And then he's like, oh, I should break out now. So I think, again, this is an, it, like d- kind of digging into, b- reading between the lines a little Maybe more. Maybe the,
0: they're explaining how he got out and they didn't really show that in the comic Maybe before. a
1: little bit, because he definitely is handed an eye and this, this amulet's meant to look like an eye.
0: Yeah. I just don't remember it coming back. Maybe it did. I don't think
1: it does. I don't think it does.
0: It looked fucking cool when the guard shot him and yeah. exploded. Yeah. <laughs> that, he, like,
1: was of, that was some of some of
0: the coolest visual effects I've seen maybe ever, definitely in this show. Um they come apart and it's gory and it's it's otherworldly. They they like atomize almost, yet there's this like goop that goes everywhere and it's so gross and and off-putting that you only really have to show it once. And then you can start showing the after effects of it. You can start showing the outside when it sprays on the window and like stuff like that. And it's so effective because you know what it looks like. Um, I also like that they tease it because it happens to the nightmare. It happens to um, the Corinthian, the Corinthian, but it looks very different when it happens to him because he's not flesh and blood. So it was very like, I feel like there's a lot more light and it looked a lot more sort of CG, whatever. But then when it happens to a human being and you see the blood and bones, it's yeah. a lot grosser. And that was another one of those moments where I went, okay, they're going there in this show.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that, that they made a, a real decision to do that because I think there is a version of the show where they just have them turn into light as well. Yeah. You know, who's to say that like, I mean, like a bullet obviously does penetrate and create like carnage, but who's to say that they couldn't just say like it reflects and some magical thing turns them into light. And they oh just yeah. It, it reflects up. back yeah. and
0: hits them. No, they, they, he, they shoot a gun at him and then they explode. <laughs> like it's pretty dramatic. Yeah. And it's very like, I don't know, it's very magical, too, because it's kind of sl- it's a slow motion explosion when he gets in the elevator. And then like they get, and then he he comes down, and he gets out and there's just blood and grossness all over the walls. Yeah. And he's being David Thewlis looking all like unassuming yep. like it's so good.
1: Great. Yeah. So uh, we'll get more of him. But episode four is called A Hope in Hell. To retrieve his helm, Morpheus descends into hell where he meets Lucifer Morningstar, the realm's ruler. He finds the demon with the helm, but in order to get it back, the demon challenges Morpheus to a game of wits. Morpheus chooses to represent himself in a challenge, but the demon chooses Lucifer as his champion. Morpheus eventually wins the challenge by invoking hope, a a concept which Lucifer recognizes as unbeatable and is able to regain the helm. Before he leaves, Lucifer promises to one day kill Morpheus. John is offered assistance by a good Samaritan and is able to retrieve the ruby, but not before Morpheus discovers its whereabouts and the fact that John has altered the item to attune to his own wishes and nobody else's. John passes the protection amulet to his terrified rescuer, deciding that he no longer needs it.
0: Yeah. well, wow. So this episode, when I heard him say, you know, we're going to hell, and I was like, here we go, I, I kept thinking this is going to be a hurdle, This, this show is not gonna be able to clear. Yeah. Going to hell is gonna be tough to sell me. I've seen hell a lot of times. Usually it's underwhelming. I thought this was a good version of the hell. The when, when they go up to the gates and it looks and you see the bodies, much like we saw in the comic. And then he rings the gong and when he hits the gong, all the bodies move and it pulls back and you see them all move. I was like, okay, they're going to fucking do it. They're going to pull it off. This is a good version of hell.
1: Yeah. And I think those those set pieces do a lot of good rather than showing this like giant expanse of fire and this hellscape or whatever, show the little things that get us in closer like that gateway or Lucifer's chambers or, you know, the the, forest, the the climbing up the wall, the forest. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's all these little moments, a lot of them right out of the comic very important you see twisted bodies like there's bodies in the trees there's bodies inside of lucifer's chambers i love that there are just souls everywhere in constant agony twisted up in the f- in the foundations of these buildings that's dark and the demons look good. They're fucking huge and powerful. And he has his little rhyming game even in the end, you know, to get in. Um, a lot of that stuff's really cool and I'm glad it made it into the show. It was a little weird having having this little uh, comic relief character hopping along next to him on the ground. Yeah. I don't know why they don't have him like perch on the shoulder more or like, I don't know what it, it something about him hopping around on the ground just looks really weird to me as a bird, but Okay. Okay, I understand that he explain, he's explaining to him what hell is like, who Lucifer is, all this stuff, which is important for us. I get it. Again, I'm just on the fence. <laughs>
1: yeah. So something that was made more clear to me when we watched the show, I didn't realize in hell that we were getting the setup of the story of Nada, which we get in like issue eight or something in the comic. Agreed. I didn't realize that in the comic, but here it's reiterating to me like in hindsight, like, oh shit, like we've already met her and there's this weird connection that they've already yeah. shown that we don't know a ton about yet
0: yeah and dream has is somehow responsible for her being here right and
1: i think it's left even more vague than that in the comic but yeah here we it, he states, no it is
0: and, and th- this is what i was talking about it's a lot of this kind of stuff that the show is explaining more explicitly and i think that that actually works for me because it's making sure i'm not missing it <laughs> exactly they're good.
1: doing a few things to simplify and i think that does tend to be the case with adaptation sometimes is like like there's a reason we don't get three rulers of hell right now we just yeah. get lucifer and that just works it's a little easier and to and like you know this challenge with this demon back and forth having lucifer battle with dream is interesting because they're both these entities that are like all powerful and and that like connection obviously we're going to have some more lucifer going forward
0: Yeah, um, let's talk about that. So this all plays out very similarly. We get the demon summoned um, and then they end up having this game. And I thought for a minute, you know, it's like we're going to do battle. I was like, oh, are they going to actually do some sort of physical battle? But once again, they're just setting it up and it's just sort of a misdirect and they play the game. But it's visualized in a way that is cool. The things that they are affects the actual body of the person playing the game. It seems like, you know, we see them collapse with wounds, which is cool. But uh, Lucifer takes the position of the demon rather than the demon. It's Lucifer who fights against Dream. I think this works to give Gwendolyn Christie a little more to do, a little more of a meteor role to sink her teeth in. Um, I think she's good as Lucifer.
1: I like her as Lucifer, by the way, a lot. I think she, you know, I think she can pull it off, and I, I, I'm, I'm confident that we're getting more of her before the series is over.
0: I hope so. Um, and the only thing I was leading up to is my my one caveat is that. Seeing Lucifer lose to Dream in this game, to me, is a little bit risky because it does take away a little bit of the power of Lucifer that you've, you've established. Now, that can, be, that can be regained, but I think now you've, you've set up Lucifer as someone that Dream has already bested. And he does kind know. of
1: best Lucifer at the end, regardless, in the comic and here, just by saying, you know, the like, what is the Lucifer says, you're not allowed to leave, and then Dream outsmarts Lucifer and says, I am because
0: what is uh, hell without the damn being able to dream of heaven, something like that. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So I think that like, do I agree with you? Yes, because I do think that this is a, a heavier loss that that Lucifer takes rather than the sort of statement and like you're yeah. not actually. He just beats me. some demon. Right. Basically. And then and then he says, like, I'm, you know, I'm leaving. Yeah. And then she's like, no, you're not. And he's like, actually, I am. So yeah. that's not it's more of a verbal back and forth. But technically, so. yeah was
0: And it seemed like Lucifer was kind of OK with it. Ultimately, like, yeah, sure, I'll let you go. You know,
1: the threat is still there. Like, you know, I'll kill you one day. or This this threat might even be a little more on the nose than the one that we get in the comic. Yeah, I think this it wasn't as clear to me that Lucifer was like, I'm going to fucking kill you.
0: Yeah, because I thought they did a really good job setting up Lucifer to be you know, more powerful than him. He tells a lot of the stories behind him as he was previously uh, one of the most beautiful angels in all of heaven. And all this stuff is really cool. It's good background and it builds up Lucifer. But then seeing Lucifer bested, I don't know, in front of the entire like collection of demons, they just all saw Lucifer lose. I don't know. It just felt a little weird to me. It was like... I can see it, yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I do think that it's different. Like, there may be some combat battling going on in the future that might be different, but I thought that we had established sort of that Lucifer was less powerful than than these Endless as far as we know yeah
0: that's true and th- in the comics i think they said something that maybe that's them trying to help with the problem that they've created because they're trying to say no, no no no, he's actually even older and maybe more powerful and only only the creator is more powerful than lucifer which is interesting because I, I don't remember the creator ever being mentioned in the comic at all so
1: yeah neither do i actually now that you mentioned it yeah uh yeah i overall really like this this hell episode though i think they pulled it off
0: yeah it was cool and like i said Hell is a hard thing to pull off, and it looks good.
1: So we see John with this Good Samaritan and their interactions.
0: I thought this was great, man.
1: I thought it was awesome. He's very threatening and, like, scary. He's He keeps doling out, like, I was in prison for murder. And all these things are slowly given to this Good Samaritan. And, you know, she's freaking out. She goes in this gas station and tries to get help. And then again, we get this sort of, like, exploding person trying to shoot John, and it all worked really well for me. And I was surprised at the end that he didn't kill her.
0: Yeah. So I, I had that, you know, that's, I think, the most interesting change uh, here at the end of this episode is he goes in. Uh, Dream has collapsed. He gets back his amulet, comes back out to the car. He walks up to her the same spot he does in the comic to shoot her. And I can, I, they know that all the comic book readers are waiting for her to die. And so I think this was directly playing with that expectation here. This was, this was we're going to give you what you think you're going to get, and then we're going to change it. And he gives her the amulet instead, and he says, nothing, nothing can harm you. I think importantly here, she hasn't lied to him. She doesn't like. She is a very truthful person. She says she thinks lying is the worst thing you can do, and this seems very, very important to John Burgess, at least in the in the show.
1: There is a couple things though. She it makes it seem like she does lie to her kids. She doesn't answer that question. I don't think.
0: And then she kind of lies when she goes in the in the
1: when she goes in the store. She's trying to like she doesn't actually
0: need gas. Right. So there was some lying, but I don't know nothing real big, and maybe nothing he really realizes. Anyway, it seems like he actually likes her. He gives her this amulet and you know, walks away and she lives. Um, I I thought it was kind of a cool change in what it does is humanize John Burgess a little bit more going into next episode.
1: I think they realized that they didn't need the double back to back ruthlessness moments, right? Like they're like, we can give him this moment because next episode, we know how ruthless he's going to be. It's really
0: interesting to have this version where he's kind of this complex, almost abused and neglected person who has been twisted by his mother's lack of love and lies and the 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 amulet itself twisted him and he should have ever had that all plays better to me when we see him show mercy than it would have if we if we had seen him murder her yeah so i think this I version of john burgess that they're using here because he is slightly different he is I think, different yeah. i think it works i think it works really well um for what they want out of this following episode
1: right so this episode episode 5 is called 24 7
0: man when i saw that title i got so excited too yeah
1: i think we knew it was coming you mentioned it last week and i, I didn't like... know it was
0: going to be the last episode we covered for the for this episode of the podcast though so i was really excited like hey we get to talk about this one which was my favorite issue in the comics
1: yeah yeah Oh, uh, what's funny is my favorite issue in the comics. I think we're, we're, is the next episode that we have yet to see. Oh, really? Uh, so yeah, we'll, I, we'll I saw lead the, off with that. Nice. I saw yeah the next one. I, we, I saw the the episode title. Uh, did you at the be at, at the? I couldn't believe they did this. At the at the, I didn't watch it. I got out just in time. But at the end of the first episode, they're like. On this season of The Sandman, and they did, they started this preview of the. I didn't watch it. I got Backed out of there. Backed out
0: immediately. I <laughs> got out of there.
1: Why yep. do that? Why would I, you do that? I, hate I think that. it's
0: because like, kind of what I was saying. I, I honestly think the opening, the pilot to this episode, is a little bit of a tough pill to swallow for some people, and I think they wanted to show they wanted to do everything they could to entice you to keep watching.
1: Yeah. I think you're probably right. Uh, you know, focus groups probably said as much or something, you know, something. Yeah.
0: Well, it's the same reason that they put a mini trailer in front of the trailer you're about to watch on YouTube, which I fucking hate. But I'm sure there is there is they've proven that if they include that, then people watch the trailer rather than backing out of the video more often because that's the only reason they still do it. Yeah.
1: Some weird like attention span thing that we have these days or something. Anyway, episode five is called 24 seven. John now, in possession of the ruby, takes refuge in a local diner. There, he uses the ruby's power to prevent the patrons and staff, and the world at large shown via the television, from being able to lie, eventually driving them to murder each other or commit suicide. Morpheus arrives and transports John to the Realm of Dreams, where John appears to use the ruby's power to defeat Morpheus. Crushing the ruby in his hand, John exults in his victory before Morpheus reveals himself and tells him that by destroying the ruby, its power was released back into its true master, Morpheus. Taking pity on John, Morpheus returns him to the institution, seemingly in a state of long-term sleep. Elsewhere, Morpheus's sibling, Desire, plots against him.
0: What an episode, man. I really like this one. Um, I don't actually know that it was my favorite, though. I really liked episode three a ton with Constantine, which we've already talked about, but... This episode was very, very good. Um, it is a great culmination. It's it's, it's uh, David Thulis just, you know, doing his thing. Um, it's a bottle episode for the most part, which I'm a sucker for a good bottle episode. Um, we get a bunch of new characters we've never met before, and they each have their own little short story that plays out over the course of the episode. It's a very clever thing to do. It's a lot of similar stuff to what was going on in the comic, but it, it feels like they wanted to actually give each of them a little bit more of a fucked up arc where like, there's sort of a moral behind this story too, about like too much honesty or, or something, right? Although then Sandman comes in at the end and basically says, you took away their dreams. And when you take away their dreams, this is what happens, which was a cool kind of reframing of what we had just seen. Um, Yeah, I really liked it. It was, it was, it was a twist on what happened, but the heart of him being in this diner and basically torturing these people for his own amusement is still there, uh, still very fucked up. And if anything, they made me feel much worse for the people than I even did in the comic.
1: Yeah. I couldn't help but think about what you said last week where like, it's like having a monster in comics, like sit in the corner and all this stuff. And we didn't get that monster here. We got David Thulis, like the sort of unassuming villain type that, that you're, you know, we've talked about so far.
0: Everybody just kind of forgets about him for a long time,
1: which makes sense. Cause he's not like a goblin looking creature, <laughs> yeah. like the comic character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i i thought it was awesome you know like you said cool bottle episode i think they did good to flesh out the characters i think they had interesting sort of there's this guy who wants a job and then the ceo is there and all this other stuff but he also like leans into some of the things in dreams the more animalistic nature of humans and stuff whether it's violence or sex or just like telling lies and truths and things like that uh yeah, it built up to this really fun episode and it's nice. It's a nice bottle episode, nice self-contained episode. If you just showed someone that episode, I think on its own, it gives a good snapshot of a, of a cool story. But it also is like in the same way that the comic issue is, it's almost a standalone sort of story. It doesn't really, there's not a ton of crossover with anything else that's going on, which I kind of appreciate. I like I like that in storytelling instead of going with what's expected, doing something like this and fleshing out the world in that way. I did feel like this in the, in the comic really fleshed out the world in ways. And the first issue is not from the perspective of Dream. And I think the these sort of stories from the comic and, and here as well, because they're adapting it so faithfully, show that like that's not, not Sandman doesn't have to be in every episode. And I think that it can still be a solid storytelling and really cool vehicle for different kinds of
0: stories that you can tell. Yeah, I mean he shows up at the end, but you're right. For the most part, he's gone. Um, so I, I, one, I, I really liked what they did with a lot of these a uh, lot of these little stories. I like the uh, our, our main sort of character for this episode is honestly the waitress, uh, Bet Betty. I don't remember how to say it. Yeah, Bet. Bet maybe. Um, anyway, she's a writer. So, you know, she's right out of the comic in some ways. Yet she's got these interpersonal relationships. She's set up somebody who's in there. Um, she tells lies in some ways, but they're like lies of kindness, and he sort of exposes that, but she's also seemingly sort of afraid. Um, and he, it's like, at first, there's like, he's like giving them the strength to like say their truth, but then it goes beyond that, and, and it becomes like this cautionary tale about like too much truth, or too much stripped, if you strip away all consideration about other people and you only care about yourself and you, and you sort of pursue things selfishly like the id, right? If the id becomes everything, then of course that turns really bad. There's a lot of sex, a lot of violence. And, um, it, to me, it's like almost like classic storytelling. It's, it's, you know, this is, this is a, a thing that you see time and again, and it's done really well here. And it, it all plays out in this little diner. Very cool. Honestly. Um, uh, I, I would, I think there's only two minor criticisms I would have of this episode. Uh, one would be I didn't need to see the glowing ruby as much as I did. <laughs> right. I, I knew that the they ruby did, was behind it, but man, did right. they want to keep showing that thing in his hand glowing just so you were sure. <laughs>
1: I will cop to the fact that I liked that they did the ruby thing and then they did this thing in a lot of shots where clearly the glow of the ruby wasn't at play, but because the sort of power of the ruby was at play, there would be like red reflect highlights and reflections on people's shoulders yeah. and things in the scene that Love like- that. That is the really way well. to do
0: it. I, yeah. I, it was when they kept showing his hand, they kept showing his hand, gra- and he'd be like grasping it and like squeezing it. And I'm like, man, yeah, we- I get it, man. I, I know he's using the ruby. Um, and then the other thing is, I didn't think that they did a great job of establishing that this was far reaching beyond the diner. Because, I mean, in the comics, it's like affecting the world. And at the end of the episode, we see Sandman walking in the street and there's like fire and stuff. And they're talking about, like, are people going to be okay after this? So I'm like, I guess it did affect the world. But I wasn't seeing a lot of evidence in that outside of some like storm systems and then talking about the pandas and all that. Like, I wasn't seeing a lot of evidence of people losing their minds and attacking each other. And there was all this death. Like I wasn't seeing that in this version. So I wonder if they thought for some reason they needed to like back off of that a little bit. Cause it felt like they were trying to portray that that was going on, but also not really put it on screen. So I'm not sure what happened there, but I, I, it, I was a little bit unclear about that. It was like, Oh, I guess they are going with that. Cause I thought they were going to keep it a little more contained than they did. I think it was just the TV and they didn't cut away for the sake of a bottle episode, but you could have had more in the news. That's the easy way to do it. They kept setting up the news. They could have had reports are coming in of, you know, planes crashing and people attacking each other. And like you have news stories about it and they didn't do any of that. All they had was like the storms and the pandas. And I th- I think that was it. I don't remember much more going on with the news. It feels to me like it was there and they cut it out or something. Yeah,
1: I, I feel like it was more clear to me. Maybe there's more that I'm forgetting right now, but Yeah, I mean, I I see what you're getting at, especially if we we knew going in that it was there was also going to be stuff going on in the outside world. So maybe for people who didn't, it would be it would be tougher to pick up on.
0: Some of the darkest stuff from the comic makes it in by the end. Um, Now, in the comic, there's a lot. It feels like he plays with them a lot more like they are. They become his toys and he plays with them for 24 hours. And we see a lot of different shit that he puts them through. Here it's like basically one major thing shifts into one other major thing and then it's over. They kill themselves or die. Um, but we do see that that the the hammer, the nail through the hand. We see some limbs getting chopped off, people getting stabbed and stuff. So like some of that's in there and the, the, the stabbing of the own eyes happens. Um, Hecate shows up.
1: Yeah, the Hecate thing. Was that in the comics? I didn't remember.
0: I think it might be. The whole thing where like they won't tell him his future, that actually I think is in the comics.
1: Yeah, I think you're because they show
0: up at times at different moments in the story. And like we'll talk to characters like it happens a little in a later issue. So I think I think they actually might show up here and say something to this effect.
1: Yeah. And then we got to talk about Morpheus and John's battle, um, which was not. So for me, it was not as crazy as it was in the comic, which it was something that I really liked. They're like sort of like jumping through dreams and and it, it was a lot. And here I think they, you know, budgetary reasons and just for the sake of what the story they're telling, it was a little smaller scale. I do
0: like that Dream really fucked with him with this nightmare. Yeah. And his yes. like mom, and then he sees that his mom shaking a baby in a cradle, which is pretty, pretty brutal. Like he, he was having like a bad nightmare and then he realizes it's a dream, which is similar to what goes on in the in the, in the the uh, comic. But, you know, I thought actually more effective here. Yeah,
1: um, it was cool. And then ultimately that we get the giant, giant Morpheus holding John.
0: It looked okay. I don't know. Yeah. It, that's really tough. But I think because like, if someone was so small that they fit in the palm of your hand, any little micro movement you did would be like an earthquake to them. So yeah. it's always really tough for me when you see a hand and someone's standing on it and they're perfectly still.
1: Well, it's it's Dream. He's He can do anything. It's <laughs> in a
0: dream. He's Dream. It, it plays off. But there's just something, there's some disconnect in my mind. Like when I see someone just standing there and I'm like, I don't know. It just, it just not quite right. Like they should be a little more unsteady. I don't know.
1: And then he ends up taking him to the institution, and yeah. You know. So
0: he puts him back in the institution now. In the comics, it's Arkham Asylum. Um right. And this this actually opens up another topic I wanted to talk about a little bit: the comic influence and the the Arkham and the DC and the different characters being referenced. I was telling my wife about how like we see Batman, we see like yeah the Justice League reference and all this stuff, and um, she was like kind of glad that that wasn't in the show, and I agreed because. Ultimately, I think that muddies the waters too much at this point. There's way too much baggage you start bringing in. It was kind of fun to see it in the comic. But in the show, it would have been weird to be like, yeah, yeah, Batman's over there doing his... Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for what? sure.
1: Even if you showed like a bat symbol or yeah. like a shadow in the night, it would be a lot. And and there's a lot that like comes with that. Like you said, baggage wise. Gaiman, yeah. I read Gaiman opted to remove the references to the DC universe as the overall Sandman series moved away from the initial ties with the DC universe. So it sounds like the comic later moves away comics, more as well. Yeah. And then he also wanted to avoid potential implications as the series would tie into other DC comic adaptations in the future.
0: Yeah. I'm glad honestly I'm glad I want that. I wanted this to kind of be standalone like it was kind of fun. But ultimately, I want this to be more like a Watchmen and be its own thing. That's how I prefer it.
1: Well, and, and like Watchmen has been, you know, within the DC comics, like Watchmen has crossed over with, with eventually, it, you know, it all, it was all was Alan Moore writing
0: those episodes though. Cause if not, it's not canon. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't <laughs> think he was, but then, I don't, then again, I'm not totally sure. Uh,
1: I, even being a big comics fan in general, I agree. I, it yeah. doesn't need it. And, and I feel like even not the comic, everything has to be in the same universe. Yeah. Even the comic, like I, I was like, I like it. I think it's fun, but it's also a little unnecessary. It
0: raises questions, right? You're like, where's yeah. Superman? If Superman exists, he should be involved. You know what I mean? Like, he yeah.
1: exists in the comic. And like we've seen like a little like drawing of him within the comic already. So he exists. I think it's cool to think of ways that these things exist in the comic. And I think that's great for the, the comic going forward. But totally makes sense for a show to be its own standalone thing. Yeah,
0: definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, he- putting him back, I think this is why we saw the change, right? Because in the comics, I said it felt like he got off really easy. To be returned to Arkham Asylum which has got the worst security in all of all of comics I think um and he's like yeah this is fate worse than death it's like I'll be out again in another issue when I need to come back which may very well happen I don't know maybe we'll see John just come back but um he, I, that little bit of sympathy I had for him now he burned through it quickly with the fucked up shit he did to this to these people um in this ca- in this cafe but like I don't know. I felt a little more sympathy for him. And then, and dream even says like, it's not your fault. This was never meant for mortals. You know, this is something your mother did to you, stuff like that. It makes me feel a little bit sorry for him. And then the fact that he gets put back in prison. Oh, we actually didn't talk about, cause my comparison in the comic was that, and what he did to Alex was so dark and felt almost more like an, almost of an overreaction um, whereas what he does here is, I think he just says like you're gonna eternally sleep. We don't hear about eternal waking, which is what he curses him with in the comic. Um, so I was a little, yeah, it felt like uh, we haven't seen him really take vengeance on anybody yet. Honestly, um, I wonder if they're saving that or if maybe they want to change that side of of. I, I mean, it's
1: interesting bit. to think of Neil Gaiman over the course of like a 70 issue run or whatever, how that character develops and changes too, and how giving a second crack at it like to give it new life to new viewers and people who are not familiar maybe he wants to sort of set the character up in different space i don't well, it's know it's also
0: but- subtle changes to characters like alex they made alex a little bit more like he's not much of a character like you just he's just shitty in the in the comics for the most part whereas like you kind of feel sorry for him a little bit because he had this shitty dad that didn't love him and and treated him like crap And yeah, he made a mistake by not letting him out, but he was terrified to do so. So, like, you kind of understand it. So, like, I feel like with those little shifts, they were like, well, it'd probably be pretty shitty for him to, like, really curse this guy, so we better back off of it a little bit with this eternal sleeping rather than this, like, non stopping non-stop waking up from nightmare thing that keeps happening. Yeah, i just hope topic.
1: that like they still are able to represent the power going forward of and that's going
0: to be my that's what i was going to move to next um now that we're basically wrapping up we do see desire introduced at the end of this episode yeah. which i'm excited to see we don't know
1: much about desire on either end though on comics or show don't
0: know anything about desire H- haven't seen them do a lot yet in the in the actual comics. I mean,
1: I'm intrigued because I want to know about all of these endless. That's the thing I'm most excited about.
0: really excited to see death. I thought we were going to see death, um, you know, in these early episodes, but, um, I guess that you said that maybe that's next episode. So waiting for the introduction of death. Uh, that's something we got in the comics, but haven't got yet in the show. Excited about that. If you're a show only viewer, I guess, look forward to that. Um, But so expectations going forward, I think it'd be fun to talk about with the caveat of we've read some stuff that goes a little bit past this. But for the most part, not really, other than maybe some of the stuff with death. Like, what do you see? Maybe even both comics and show. Where is this going? What's going to be the next big bad now that John Burgess has been defeated? Is it the Corinthian?
1: Yeah, I think that it's pretty clear that it is. Um, really, especially with the comic and and then the show. I kind
0: of don't think it is. I think no? the Corinthian is a little bit of a red herring bad guy. I think he's he is he is going to be in
1: the comic or in the movie or in, in the both.
0: Show. Honestly, uh, you know, I could very well be wrong, but I feel like he is going to be a stepping stone bad guy to somebody else, and I think we're going to see one of the endless maybe it's yeah. maybe it's desire desire probably um, yeah. or maybe lucifer comes back i don't know we're going to see one of the endless or one of these other major players start to take a more central role as a central antagonist yeah. well I, I think
1: that that is the and i think that's long term storytelling these the, we only have 5 more episodes and and this yeah this section of the comics that we've gotten so far we're only going to the end of dollhouse or whatever this this sort of uh run is called
0: how do you feel about the corinthian because to me, to me, he is not as interesting as John Burgess as a bad guy. He's just a nightmare. Like he's he's just a he's just a he's just a bad force of energy. Like I don't I don't feel like he has enough. Juice to him as far not as like power, but like as, as storytelling wise to be compelling as a major foe.
1: I feel like he's been kept on the sidelines. We don't know enough about him, especially in the comic. Like I have no idea what to expect, really. But I do think that, like in terms of a threat going forward, maybe not the big bad, but a threat going forward, he's clearly been set up for that in both both. He's going to
0: be the the main focus of an issue of a um one of the issues in one of the episodes going forward for sure. For sure. Whether or not that's the final big arc of yeah. this run, I don't. I think
1: know. it's clear that Desire is being set up as an antagonist. It, to you, yeah,
0: maybe Desire will be. Um, I like the idea of like a tricky like you know, there's like a antagonistic relationship yet they are, they're immortals. Right. And this is something that immortal storytelling loves to play with is the idea of like, well, I know I can't kill you, but I can make your life hell or I can do, you know what I mean? Like, so like they fuck with each other, even though there's like sort of a mutual understanding that like, yeah, I'm not going to kill you, but I can do this and that to you. And that maybe that'll be worse. Actually.
1: I think desire had something to do with the nada stuff in the comics
0: yes yeah that that was implied yeah so I'm, i think that we'll get more uh th- more of that in the show uh, coming up here soon i assume
1: yeah and that's like you know a fate worse than death is having to deal with like a lover who's yeah. now, you know
0: that's what i keep coming back to man so in the comics there's another character we haven't been introduced yet who it feels like they're maybe setting up as a potential love interest for dream I'm wondering could we see that get shifted or rolled into uh, Joanna Constantine in some way I would like that because I like that that, I like that performance I want to see her come back Um, even though I know that some comic fans are probably screaming because the other character is so interesting and so great and you can't don't you dare do that so I understand that like I feel like they probably aren't going to do that ultimately but um, I would kind of be okay with it just because I like that character so much I'd like to see more of her
1: me too. And you have to kind of adapt and bob and weave when you do this stuff, right? Like whatever's working, you kind of lean into and things change and adaptations. are. Sometimes aren't s-
0: characters get combined.
1: For sure. It's like I said before, I want to see some of the power. I want to see, I hope they saved a lot of their budget for the second half. I hope that we get some like large, I like the scope of this. I love the endless stuff. I want to see more of that. I
0: want to see Salmon flex though, right? Like, uh, yeah, show the power because he's got his power back now too, Right. right.
1: Finally, in both, both you know, mediums. Yeah. So, so that's a great segue for this next episode of the podcast. We will be finishing up both the comic run and the show. Yeah,
0: honestly, I don't know how we're going to do it because there's going to be a lot to talk about.
1: <laughs> there will be a lot to talk about, but we got some of the uh, the setup. out. We'll have to roll
0: them into, into like talk about two issues in one episode or something and do it all at once. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't yeah. even know how to do it, but it's going to be a lot, man. We'll talk really fast. Do you think we talk fast now? We'll talk extra fast next week. Or it'll just be a fucking two and a half hour episode. Who knows?
1: We'll see. <laughs> uh, I hope for the sake of the edit, it's not two and a half hours, <laughs> <Yeah>. but...
0: <laughs> My voice can't, ha- they can't stand up that long, I don't think.
1: We're, f- we're wrapping up both next week. I'm really looking forward to getting back into the comic. I'm really looking forward to getting back into the show.
0: Oh, hey, I just remembered. So uh, after we are done with Sandman, we are going to be doing a quarterly project that is chosen by our community. Last time we did Stand By Me. I think we did Emma... I want to say, as a, as a community decision. So this has been really cool. It's, it's brought us into projects that we weren't necessarily going to choose. The way that we do that, and I'll put a, make sure I'll put a link in the show notes, is there's going to be a Patreon post. As a non-patron, you can go there and vote by clicking like the heart. Like Basically, are upvoting projects that you like. So read through the comments. Find any project that you're like, yeah, I want to hear that. Vote for the ones you like, and it'll essentially upvote them. And then it'll become one of the finalists if it gets enough votes. If you would like to actually be able to suggest stuff that's not on the list, become a patron, which means you have to at least buy in for a little bit, get a bunch of bonus episodes, other cool stuff like that. But once you do that, then you'll be able to actually comment on the post, your own suggestion. um, And then when the final uh, poll is released, which will be a top three or four, at that point as a patron, you'll be able to vote on that final poll. Um, So that's a cool way to affect what we cover. If there's something in particular you'd like to hear us talk about, you know, book to film combination, uh, that's the best way to do it. So yeah, if you are liking our coverage and you want to hear some favorite project of yours... Uh, check that out patreon.com slash ink to film
1: if you also wanted to help out the podcast in another way you could write a rating or a review on any platform that you listen on but itunes where we've yeah. amassed quite a few so we'd love to get more over there apple podcasts yeah and and it really helps to spread the word on the podcast so you know help us to continue to grow
0: and make sure to connect with us on social media we are at ink to film on twitter instagram facebook and on tiktok we are on there as well now. So yeah, follow us. Uh, we do different things on all of those accounts, post different stuff, um, interact with the community in different ways. Uh, it's a cool way to connect with us.
1: And thank you to Jeremy Blake for the use of our intro and outro music.
0: All right, we'll be back one more week to talk about Sandman and put a bow on it and ultimately make our decision for what is the better version, the comic volume one that we will have read or the season one of the show. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be tough. This is a good show. I was saying it's going to be a really tall order, but um, the show's good. The show's good, so it's got to stick the landing. We'll see if I continue to love the comics as much as I did. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited, man. Looking forward to next week, and I hope you join us then. Until next time, Keep adapting. Keep adapting.